morning. Good morning, Rabotai. Welcome to Breakfast in the Class. Breakfast in the Class is dedicated in loving memory of David Barmoha. From his wife Sylvia, yeah, his children, Yigal, Asheroni, Yossi, Nir, Shiran, and family. And as well, in dedicated in loving memory of David Evrani, David Ben Malka, sponsored by Amanda and Matan Evrani and family. Uh, as well, dedicated for the Refuash of Binyamin, Ben Dina, Ben Mashiach, sponsored by Simon Simantov. And the week of Kobru is dedicated in loving memory of Sammy Sayed, sponsored by his son. Isaac Said. My friends, I want to share with you an interesting, uh, an interesting little bit of Torah that we learned from this, uh, from the end of last week's parasha leading into this one. At the end of the parasha last week, we talked about all of the Alufe Esav, all of the leaders of the tribe of Esav, all the kings that were going to come from Esav. And we talked a little bit about why the Torah feels it's necessary to talk about the kings of Esav. Very important. Um, it illustrates as well the messages and lessons with regards to Yaakov, etc., etc. However, the question that I feel we need to ask more than anything else is uh, on the Pasuk, on Rashi, that begins in the beginning of our parasha, where he says that Yaakov noticed all of the various kings and all of the greatest leaders that were coming from Esav, and he began to despair. And he said, how can I overcome all of these? So many kings, so many powerful leaders, so many powerful warriors, you know, these uh, warrior kings that they used to have. Um, how, how will I ever survive if they hate my family, if they hate my children so much? And Chazal tell us, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu intimated to him what the solution would be. And it's quoted in a pasuk in the Navi. The pasuk goes, V'haya bet Yaakov, the house of Jacob will be le'esh, as a fire. Ubet Yosef, and the house of Joseph will be uh, like a lehava, will be like a flame. Okay? Ubet Esav, and the house of Esav will be le'kash, uh, will be as straw. And the Gemara brings a seemingly interesting example. There was once a fellow who was a blacksmith and he lived and his work was down a narrow alleyway. He notices a fellow coming with, uh, with, with camels and on the back of each one of these camels is stacked piles and piles of pishtan, of flax and of linen. And as they're coming down into his alleyway he thinks to himself, look with all these great loads you know, they're going to block my store entrance. I'm not going to be able to get in and out of my store. Customers are not going to be able to come in if they walk with their, uh, with their camels down the alley and into my store. A wise man said to the blacksmith, he said, what are you worried about? One spark from your smith as you strike the steel with the hammer on, your, on the anvil, one spark that comes off of your anvil, and all of the cash is burnt, disappears in one second. So too, he said to Yaakov Aminu, it's true that there's many different things going on over here in front of you, but it's important to realize that you have in your ranks, you have not only the internal fire, if you will, of the Jewish people, but you also have the house of Yosef, which is called Lehava Aflame. And that's why our rabbis tell us that, ya that Yaakov was not prepared to leave the house of Lavan until something happens. 
What's his cue? What's he waiting for? Yosef to be born. As soon as Yosef is born, Yaakov knows now he's got the antidote to the bet cash, to the house of straw. He has um, bet, uh, bet Yosef lehava. The house of Joseph is aflame. In the aftermath of World War II, you had many people who were living in these, uh, in these, deep, in these um, uh, displaced persons camps. And one of the people that was living in one of these camps was a young Rabbi Galinsky. He was already a person that was uh, speaking, that was you know, uh, outspoken, he was a powerful orator, but he was very, very young. And he was approached by the head of the camp, of the, D, of the DP camp, whose name was Rav Schenk. He came to him and he said, I'd like, to, like you to say a couple of words today. He says, where? He, the rabbi tells him, we're going to take all of the, uh, the displaced people in the camp. We're going to travel into town. We're going to go into this hall in Carlsberg, uh, okay? And in this hall, we're going to have a big event. And over there, with all these people and all these soldiers, these uh, American soldiers, other soldiers, and the rabbi, and myself, and I want you to speak on behalf of all of the prisoners. I'll speak on behalf of the rabbi, but I want you to say something on behalf of the prisoners. He says, what's the event? He says, you know, in the aftermath of the war, you have so many people who want to get back to their Torah study. So many people that want to get back to the way of Jewish life, but they destroyed the books. They confiscated the books, they burned the books. So we decided to print we found one copy of Shas. We decided to print from that one copy another hundred copies and distribute the books so that all the prisoners should be able to learn and to study the Gemarot that they've been missing this past five years in the hell that was the war. He says, that's what the plan is? He says, yeah, he goes, you know what? I have a great idea. But he says, but tell me one thing. Why is it that you're choosing to do it in this specific hall why are you taking all the prisoners and moving them to town? Why don't you just do it here in the camp, in the dining room? And Rav Shank says to him, it's very symbolic for us to do, to do the celebration of the printing of a hundred sets of shahs. It's very symbolic for us to do it in that hall. Because it was in that hall that Hitler gave his speech first about Mein Kampf, about his book, about his plan, about what he planned to do and he announced in that room that there would come a day when the Jewish people would only be something that you could go to see in a museum. In fact, if anyone here has ever been to Prague, all the synagogues in Prague, Hitler turned them into museums while he was alive and he called them the museum to the extinct race. And he started stockpiling things from the Jews so that someone could know who were these people who once lived, what were they like, what did they have? What were their customs? You know, like you would use uh, about some extinct species in, in, uh, in a museum of natural history. In that place, we're going to talk about the reprinting of the 100 Shas. In that place, we're going to talk about the Jewish future. And that will be our response to that speech. The rabbi stands up, Rabbi Galinsky, at the time a very young man, standing in his, in his uniform still, from the camps. He didn't have clothes yet, his shorts. Everyone else is standing there with their um, army uniforms, the rabbi with his long coat, and he's sitting there with his shorts and his shirt, 
from that they gave him, uh, you know, to work in the camp. And he stands up and he quotes this pasuk. Your house of Jacob will be for a fire. The house of Yosef will be for a flame. One spark is all it takes to take something that looks so big and that looks so threatening and to eliminate it from in front of us. One spark. And what spark is that? Where does the spark come from in Yaakov? And where does the spark come from in Yosef? We know that the Torah is compared to Ish. God says, Hello, Kodvarai. All of my words, they are fire. When God gave the Torah, it was given Ish Dat Lamo. It was a black fire written on a white fire, etc., etc. Everything about the Torah was Ish, was fire. Okay? What is the nature of fire? The fire takes something which is potential, it takes a piece of wood. It takes oxygen and it turns it into something which is actual. It turns it into energy. It turns it into warmth. That is the koach, the power of Torah. So much so that this is what it means when we learn about the idea that a person sometimes is stuck in a yetzer hara and they don't understand how in the world they're ever going to overcome it. They, they suffer. They have a problem. They keep trying to fix, but they keep losing their temper. They keep trying to get better, but they're doing the wrong thing. They're following their desires. And a person thinks, how will I ever do this? How will I ever change? My friend, the answer is, it's actually ironic. That change, that process of change is not hard. The Gemara tells us that at the end of time, both the Sadiqim and the Rishaim will be weeping. They'll be crying side by side. The Rishaim will look and they'll see the Yetzehara and they'll say, how in the world did we, did we stumble? Did we trip over this thing which is so small it's like a thread? How did we trip on a thread? How did we not just step over this thread? And the Sadiqim will cry and they'll look at the Yetzehara in the time of Mashiach and they'll say, how did we ever overcome this enormous mountain? The Yetzirah will appear to the Tzadikim as an enormous mountain and to the Rishayim as a, as a thread. Each one crying, one over uh, the profundity and the impossibility of them overcoming the Yetzirah with such a big task. And the other saying, how could I have tripped over something so insignificant? And now logically it sounds the other way. Surely the Yetzirah is insignificant to the Tzadikim and surely the Yetzirah is a large mountain to the Rishayim. And the Mepharshim give many answers, but I want to share one with you. You know what the answer is? In truth, what was the Yetzehara? In truth, it's a thread. It's the mountains of flax that sit on the backs of the Gamal that in one second, a tiny, a tiny spark and it just goes like this. But before, before a person brings the spark to the party, it seems enormous. The Sadiqim cry, how did we see past what seemed to be an impossible obstacle? But the Rishaim say, look, look in actual fact, post facto, how small it was. Sometimes a person struggles, struggles, struggles with a decision. But then you meet some of these old timers. And you ask the old timer, what should I do? And the old timer says, I don't understand. It's not the right thing. You ever meet someone like that? And they just chuck a couple words at you in Arabic, and for them it's so. Mabisir. 
I love that word. I don't even know if it's two words. <laughs> right? I'm not even sure. It's hyphenated. Right? Two words, Ayigal's telling me. Mabisir. Mabisir is like, you can't do that. It's not what we do. The old timers, the word Mabisir was enough to say, this is just not how we act. Yes, you have this opportunity in business. Yes, you could do this. Yes, it's a possibility. Yes, it's alluring. It's exciting. But Mabisir. Can't, you can't. It's not what we do. And they, they were so strong in their conviction that that one spark burnt the entire mountain in a split second. My friends, such is the nature and such is the power of Torah when a person is studying Torah all the time. I got a phone call once. Uh, uh, it was about 12.30 at night, maybe 1 o'clock in the morning. No one who is listening to this broadcast should take from here that you should call me at one o'clock in the morning. <laughs> this goes out to thousands of people. I don't know what it's going to be. All right. One of the things I didn't realize also, maybe I'm tipping my hand here, is that when I started WhatsApp groups and I started sending out, I actually just gave the entire fo- the world my phone number. I don't know, maybe we didn't, uh, we didn't think that one through. But either way, okay. <laughs> But the, <laughs> it's like not, there's like 11 groups now, I think. You know, it's, it's a little bit of a problem. But my, my, my friends, this guy calls me at 1 o'clock. You want to hear, hear this? It's a group of kids from high school in London. And they're out clubbing. I don't have to tell you, 17-year-old guys and girls, I don't have to tell you what's happening when they're out clubbing at 1 o'clock in the morning. They could barely get their words straight, Okay. And a guy calls me. It was one of the most beautiful phone calls I ever received. It was from a bunch of guys and girls out clubbing. And the guy says to me, he goes, Rabbi! <laughs> I was like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. Okay, that's right. You get those too. <laughs> Rabbi! Uh, what's the matter? <laughs> he says, I'm standing here by the cash machine. And I put in my card. And the machine spit out like much too much money. And I looked at my account and the machine didn't realize that it made a mistake. Rabbi, what should I do with the money? Whenever I come to a crossroads or a problem in my life, he says, I think, what would my rabbi do? He says, and I didn't know what to do and all the guys are telling me I should just keep it and stop being such an idiot. But tell me, what's the right thing to do? He's half drunk or high, I don't know. It's one o'clock in the morning. He has a lot of money in his hands. The bank did not notice the differential. They didn't debit him more than he took out, 20 bucks or 20 pounds. And what does he want to do? He wants to call the rabbi. I told him, money's not yours. I said, make a deposit back in the bank, put it back into the bank. Why'd I tell him that? Because if he kept it till the next morning, (laughs) odds are he ain't giving it back, right? I said, make a deposit. You could deposit the money back in the machine. I said, and tomorrow, and call them and tell them that the money you deposited back actually just came out extra from the machine. And then they'll debit it from your account. From your account. The guy says, thank you, Rabbi. I'm doing it now. The guy put the money back. How did this happen? How did this happen? This is the boy, one of the, one of the coolest boys. In, you know the kids that are too cool for school? He never would come. He would always, always, you know, we do the lunch and learns in school. He never wanted to attend. He never wanted to be involved. And then one time I was talking about stealing money. 
And I, gave, I was giving a very interesting story about someone who stole money and what happened to the money afterwards, etc., etc. And the guy happened to be walking by and he happened to hear the beginning of the story and he was, ex- he was interested to hear what happened at the end. So he came and he sat down. He says, Rabbi, he goes, this is not my thing. I just got to hear what happened. This is like a movie, he said. He stayed for the end of the story. He stayed till the end of the class. Okay? That week was this story. It was, the guy never really even came to learn that much. You know, he came maybe to some classes that you know, he had to come to in, in school, but he never really came to learn that much. But something landed, a spark landed, and even though the, the size of the Nisayon was great, all he needed to do was apply the Torah to it, and it disappeared from in front of him. My friends, a person wants to study, uh, wants to live in the world that we live in. I believe that today it is very, very difficult for a person to maintain their Jewish values unless we OD on Judaism. And I need to explain what I mean by that. The past generations, you sent your kid to a non-Jewish school, doesn't matter, they got enough Judaism at home to be able to contend with the world. And a lot of people think, what do you mean, what's the big deal? Why should we send our kids to a yeshiva day school, to a high school, to a Jewish school? Why is it important? We went to non-Jewish schools, we turned out okay. Grandpa went to a non-Jewish school, he turned out okay. And what I like to communicate to parents today is, I don't know if you'd have been okay in this world, in the world that we're living in now. Is it possible? Of course it's possible. But the challenges that a young Jewish boy, young man or woman face today is incomparable to any that you've ever lived in, experienced before. Let me give you an example. We like to you know, put ourselves in Jewish communities. We like to live in a Jewish community. We want the kid to be surrounded by other Jewish people, other Jewish values. The problem is, in an interconnected world, you don't decide anymore where your kids live. Your kids live on this. And, and, and the people that they surround themselves with and the voices that they hear in their ear, you don't decide. And by the way, neither do they. Who decides whose voices they hear loudest on social media, on Google, even on Google searches, on Facebook. Zuckerberg decides that. Brin decides that. Not anymore. What's the new guy, the new guy, Gupte? Right? That's who decides, the algorithm decides if they're going to hear more from some, you know, attention-starved celebrity that every day needs to come up with some new shtick you know, to keep it to stay relevant, or they're gonna hear from you. So when you're talking about immersing young people in the world that we're in today, they need to be buttressed. They need to be protected. They need to be walled off by as much Torah as you can, so that when the time comes and they have to make a serious decision about their life, what are they gonna do? I remember there was a, a, a young woman in London who did not come from a particularly religious family, who did not go to a Jewish school, but she came to some of the, the classes that we had after school in different people's uh, houses. We would do all these different classes. Wonderful girl, very smart. Anyway, she comes to me one day and she says, listen, Rabbi, how important is it? I met this guy, I really like him. How important is it 
Anyway, my kids are going to be Jewish. I remember you said in the other day that Judaism goes after the mother, right? After the mother, that's who you follow. So I'm Jewish, what difference does it make? I was like, that's the class you remember? <laughs> so does it even, does it matter? He's a nice guy. He told me he doesn't mind if I raise the kids Jewish. How many times have I heard this song and dance? So I said to her, I think you already know the answer to your question. She says, what do you mean? No, that's why I'm asking you. I said, I think you already know the answer to your question. She said, no, no, I'm, I'm asking you. I said, if you are asking me, that is the answer to your question. You don't come to the rabbi for, you know, love advice. What am I, dear Abby? <laughs> Right? You come because you know it's wrong. You know it's not what you should be doing. So she said, well, if I'm not asking you, if I'm not asking you whether or not I should get married to him, what am I asking you? I said, you're asking me for support in your decision not to marry him. <laughs> you go, girl. <laughs> She said, you're right. That girl today, no. <laughs> I'm not one of those rabbis marries his students. Sorry, it's not, uh, look for the salacious details elsewhere. <laughs> That's when you get the people coming and sitting down in the class. Oh, rabbi, you married her? That girl today has a Jewish family. And she's living in Yerushalayim. And her husband is studying Torah every day. From what? From a spark. From a class. So I don't know if this bill fits you guys. Just with a show of hands, how many of you are, those, are the annoying person in your family that forwards Torah classes? to relatives or family members that quietly hate you for it. Yeah, you, 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 yeah, okay? You're that guy, you're the forwarder. Dad, could you fix me? I don't like the classes. <laughs> right? And you know what I always say? You never know. The Torah is a fire. The Yetzehara is a pile of straw. You should probably be a little bit more judicious in which ones you forward. <laughs> so the 30-minute class that I give on Hilchot whatever might not be the one that you want to forward, or the Daf Yomi class, but a short, a short clip, something that you think is relevant to them, that would excite, that, would, that they would be engaged in. Because the nature of Torah is incredibly powerful. And although the world offers its temptations uh, you know, and dangles them in front of us, our children, our families, and our community. HaKadosh Baruch Hu already gave us the antidote. As our rabbis teach us, Barati Yetzehara, I created the Yetzehara. Barati Torah Tavlin. And I created the Torah, which is its antidote, which can overcome 
and, uh, and can engage in the most beautiful of ways. Many times I hear this question from people, you know, you're having all these Torah classes, Rabbi, it's a little bit too high, the level of Torah. You should really, you know, you should do like more like yoga classes, like meditation, that's what we should do. We should water down Judaism so it's not Jewish, it's more spiritual. Have you heard that before? More spiritual. You know why people like spirituality? Because it doesn't demand anything of them. The Torah is very demanding. It demands that we make the right choices and that we return extra money that comes from the bank and that we don't steal and that we don't hurt people and that we speak properly and that we don't uh, say Lashon Hara and that we give more money to charity, etc. Torah is very demanding. But it is a fire and it can consume anything and everything that the Yetzirah throws at it. You just have to bring the right fire. May Hashem bless all of us to be able to tap in to the power of Torah in our darkest moments and to light up an otherwise confusing and dark world. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen.